This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I am a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us once again Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History at Exeter University and is by far the most prolific historian writing in not only perhaps the Anglophone world, uh, without a doubt, but also perhaps in the entire planet. And today we are speaking about his newest book, The World at War, 1914 to 1945. Welcome, Professor Black. Good morning. Professor Black, uh, what is the thesis of your book? Well, I looked, it, I started off by looking at the idea which you see in a number of German scholars and also a number of non German scholars, for example, Michael Howard that there was a parallel between the two wars, indeed, that they were both uh, aspects of what has been referred to as a 30 years war. And I started off by looking at that, and then I moved on from that to discuss um, each of the wars in terms of the struggles on land, at sea, and in the air, the causes of the wars and their strategies, in order to try and probe this question. And I think it's fair to say that I was very unconvinced by the argument of a essential continuity between the two wars. And I think that idea looks particularly misguided if you consider the perspective of both world wars from the perspective of China or Japan, where the similarities between the two of them are nurgatory. Uh, Professor, in your preface, you make reference to, quote, umbrella wars, unquote. What are they exactly? Well, I use the term umbrella wars to describe the fact that a world war involves a whole host of struggles, some of which align with the major configurations of the world war, and some do not. I mean, if you think about it, for example, the Soviet Union was allied, in effect, to Germany between 1939 and 1941, fought Germany between 41 and 45, but didn't go to war with Japan until August 1945. So that's a very different struggle to the struggle from the perspective of, shall we say, Britain. And then you can go to other states which had a far more complex war, Finland, for example, or Thailand uh, with their own course uh, causes, chronology and consequences which are distinctive to those countries. 
why do you say that the attempt to provide a, quote, common narrative, unquote, to both wars is, quote, deeply flawed, unquote? Well, I've already mentioned the fact that it just doesn't work from the Asian perspective. Um, I would also say that it presupposes a um, a common cause, and I don't think there is a common cause in that respect. I think in World War II, the alliance between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany in 1939 reflect, reflected a commonality in um, anti-democratic uh, notions between the two states, a sort of conspiracy by two rulers, each of whom deeply distrusted each other, um, each of whom were intent on their own ends, but also wanted to do down democracies. Now, in 1914, nobody's going to pretend that Tsar Nicholas was a Democrat, but I think it's fair to say that there was no similar uh, cooperation between Russia and Germany. And I think one of the great problems with World War II is we tend to look at it as it were backwards. We know what is to happen by the latter stages of the war, and we presuppose that they inevitably were, were what was going to occur in, uh, as a result of the earlier stage. Such a security, such a certainty is simply not present in the early stage. And, and indeed, it was extraordinarily risky uh, for both Britain and France, and obviously once France was knocked out of the war in June 1940, for Britain to fight Germany under those circumstances because by the late summer of 1940, Germany is allied to Italy, allied to Japan, and allied to the Soviet Union. The Americans are making it quite clear they don't want to get involved. And that is a very different trajectory, a very different set of causes to World War I. Um, so I'm not happy with the comparisons between the two. And even if you play the strategies on to the latter stages of the war, um, by uh, late 1917, Germany, in effect, is fighting a one-front war. Um, Russia has lost, left the war. Um, it takes a while to leave it because the, um, the Kerensky government that replaces Tsar Nicholas wants to go on fighting, but it's no longer really able to fight. And once the communists take power, they rapidly do a deal with the Germans. So by the spring of 1918, the two powers are, you know, reached a peace settlement. And at that stage, the Western allies, which by then includes the uh, United States, have to face and confront a one front war. That is totally different to the strategic situation in World War II, because from uh, the summer of 1941 onwards, Germany at every stage is embarked in a two-front war, and instead of that getting better from the German point of view, it actually gets worse as American and British troops are landed on the mainland of Europe from 1943 and in even greater numbers from the summer of 1944. So the actual trajectory of the two wars is very, very different. In your discussions of the causation of the Great War, would it be correct to say that you adhere to, uh, for lack of a better expression, one could characterize as a neo-Fisherite uh, thesis of Germany being the prime instigator of the conflict? 
Yes, I think you're absolutely right there. I found Christopher Clarke's thesis in Sleepwalkers totally flawed. He seems to presuppose that the dominance of a system means that individual states uh, have no particular uh, volition or responsibility. And I think that's just simply not true. I think different states had different degrees of militarization. I think that in the case of Germany and Austro-Hungary, uh, there was a willingness to go to war in the summer of 1914 that was not matched to the same extent um, in Britain and France. And I would argue that the Germans and the Austrians uh, were the principal powers responsible for World War One. And I would take it a stage further. Um, their failure by the end of 1914 to produce a peace, uh, sorry, sorry, their failure by the end of 1914 to produce a territorial settlement on the terms they wanted. So Austria had not knocked out Serbia and was suffering heavy losses from Russia. Uh, the Germans had failed to knock France out of the war. Instead of that, leaving them, leading them to offer reasonable peace, uh, what very characteristic of the Germans for the rest of the war is their complete unwillingness to seek a compromise peace. And I think that that is a, a second serious responsibility on the German part. Well, let's come back to that for a moment. Um, I wanted to query one statement you made there, but you seem to imply in the book that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the um, German invasion of Belgium was the prime reason that the UK went to war in 1914. Is that correct or no? Yes, I would argue, I would argue that whereas that there were some elements in the British government that would have wanted to go to war simply to prevent um, Germany doing down France and therefore destroying the balance of payment, sorry, and therefore destroying the balance of power um, in Western Europe. I would argue that what really made a key uh, difference was the invasion of Belgium. Uh, Britain at that stage had a coalition government. It was dominated by the liberals. The liberals, like liberals throughout history, sought a sort of moralized foreign policy, to use a that term, if you like, and the invasion of Belgium provided that moralized foreign policy. So I think that that was tremendously important for them. And also what it showed was, quite frankly, that you could not rely on a treaty that had been negotiated uh, with Germany. And that was a serious problem in terms of the international order, however understood and whomever you wish to attribute responsibility to. Was it not the case that, uh, as Asquith told um, King George V, that the question of uh, violation of Belgian neutrality was a matter not of law, of politics? And it's pretty clear in terms of much of the literature that Asquith, uh, Gray, Churchill, et Ali were willing to go into a coalition with the conservatives if uh, the radicals in the cabinet led by Lord George were to resign and go into opposition over the question of Britain going to war with Germany? I think it would have been very, very difficult if the Germans hadn't um, invaded Belgium. And I think the same thing pertains in 1939. I mean, there are many reasons to be wary of the policy of appeasement, but one of the things the policy of, and I don't defend the policy of appeasement, but one of the things the policy of appeasement did do 
was provide a, as it were, territorial settlement, so hoped for after Munich. And the point is, of course, that the Germans had uh, destroyed the agreement as far as Czechoslovakia was concerned within six months. And I think it's fair to say that that helped to move the direction of opinion within both Britain and with the Dominions. I mean, Canada had been very wary about going to war at the time of Munich. I think it's fair to say that the situation was different uh, by the following autumn. So, you know, politicians have to make their calculations. That goes without saying. But in a parliamentary government, you can never be secure of the support of the legislature. And the legislature itself has to be mindful of how, what it construes the wider currents in public opinion to be. So that I think one of the interesting points in 1914, like the invasion of Poland in 1939, uh, had that effect. And if I might use a comparison for your American listeners, um, I would say an obvious comparison was the German, sorry, the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor. Um, the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor rather made redundant the arguments in which there were many Americans who had wished to be isolationist, some of whom because they sympathized with Germany, more commonly because they were just isolationists. Those arguments were made redundant by the bombing of, of Pearl Harbor and indeed by Hitler's declaration of war on the United States. So these matters are, are more significant than simply a, a matter of a few politicians or a few statesmen making judgments judgments, whether we approve or disapprove of those judgments, they play out on a wider public stage. And that public, wider public stage has a degree of volition, particularly when you're seeking a mass mobilization of the resources of an entire society. Uh, getting back to your statement that uh, Germany uh, was at fault for not being willing to negotiate a um, uh, peace prior to 19... 18. Um, isn't it the case that the Allies never, in fact, even offered up anything by way of uh, serious uh, peace negotiations um, and, in fact, were quite uh, unhappy when pres the American president, Woodrow Wilson, endeavored to do so in uh, late, late 1916, early 1917? Uh, no, the best peace effort was the one the Pope made trying the, Austri the new Austrian emperor, and the Germans squashed it. I mean, the problem is that in Germany, the civilian politicians had been superseded by the military, and the military, and I think it's fair to say pan-German nationalists, followed increasingly aggressive policies. After all, that's one of the reasons which led them to resume unrestricted submarine warfare against the United States in 1917, which you might regard as a sub, you know, if you were one of these silly people that think about international relations in mathematical terms, you might regard that as a suboptimal uh, decision in rational terms. But in fact, it conformed with their idea. Um, both the, uh, the military lobby and indeed, I think it's fair, the army lobby, and I think it's fair to say the naval lobby, made it absolutely clear that they intended to hold on to the bulk of Belgium. They also wanted to hold on to the iron 
uh, mines near Longy in France. It's, and they also wanted territorial gains in Eastern Europe. It's not surprising under those circumstances that it was very difficult to think of a basis for peace. The standard basis, as you will know, in Ancien Regime international relations is what was known as the status quo antebellum. In other words, you make peace on the basis of going back to the pre-war territorial basis. The German military made it absolutely clear that they were not willing to countenance any peace unless they made significant territorial gains. And that, I think, is a major fault which people need to draw attention to. And as I said, I am unimpressed completely with the arguments of people like Clark, uh, who try and, as it were, um, spread the blame all over the place. I mean, you know, we know about how people make those arguments. We see it in World War II. Instead of blaming Hitler, people blame the appeasers. But the fact of the matter is that history involves a question of qualitative moral judgments as well as an attempt to understand the past and understand what happened. And it's simply not good enough to come along with this kind of um, excuse for aggression. Uh, well, I mean, it's a little bit far afield for our books, so that particular aspect, and Professor Clark is not here to defend himself. Uh, with that being said... Oh, he's had enough honours stuffed into his mouth, he doesn't have to worry about that. <laughs> I see. In, in, in any case, um, why did the German invasion of France fail in August, September 1914? Um... Well, that's very interesting. First of all, the Germans assumed they would win. And as the great book by Annika Mombayer showed, there was no um, there was no plan B. In other words, they assumed not only that they would know what they were able to do, but they would be able to dictate um, the timetable. And, and responses of their opponents. Well, first of all, that didn't work. I mean, the Belgians resisted longer around Liège than had been anticipated. The French were able to redeploy troops from their uh, right flank to their left flank near Paris uh, much more rapidly than the Germans had uh, thought that they would. So there was a fundamental failure of, of um, assumptions on the German part. But there was also a more serious issue in terms of the nature of German war-making. The German war-making system very much put an emphasis on operational aspects of war rather than strategic aspects of war. In other words, the assumption was that they would get to Paris and that France would be knocked out of the war. Um, that's always a rather problematic one. I mean, you know, you can think of an obvious historical analogy. Um, the Poles got to Moscow in six, in the 16-teens, and obviously Napoleon got there in 1812, but it didn't actually knock out their opponents. And the Germans had really failed to consider the wider strategic uh, implications of what they were doing. They wanted a quick victory on the Western Front so they could then turn against the East. Well, um, I, A, they underrated, I think, French resilience, and B, they didn't really think through adequately the consequences of Britain's entry into the war, because Britain at that stage uh, was obviously the largest empire in the world and with, a, and with significant economic resources. So I think it's a failure of German strategy that is the major factor, and that 
failure would have existed even if the actual course of the campaigning had been somewhat different. And I think one can make the same point about the German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941. Uh, Let us say that the Germans had been more successful in the campaigning. Uh, Let us say they'd made other choices. So Hitler hadn't turned south the Panthers, Panzers of Army Group Center in order to operate against the Ukraine and had gone on going east instead. Uh, Let us say they had actually got to Moscow. I'm not at all convinced that this would have led to the outcome that they had anticipated. So I think there is a problem, which is to assume that operational considerations of warfare are always bound to trump strategic ones. Uh, Do you believe that the Germans would have been better off in concentrating against Russia in 1915-1916 as Hindenburg and Ludendorff argued at the time? I think that the Germans in the central position had to determine whom to attack on. And essentially, they focused on the Western Front in 1914-16 and 18, and on the East in 1915 and to a considerable extent 1917. And in the end, Russia succumbed. It wasn't clear to them, or indeed I think it's fair to say to anybody else, which necessarily was the weaker ones of their opponents. Um, So I think that the argument that more resources should have been devoted to the Eastern Front in uh, 1916, whilst convenient for uh, Ludendorff and Hindenburg, because that's how they, um, you know, that's their field of, um, as it were, expertise and background. I think it's understandable Falkenhayn made a different decision, and you know, it's only, it's only, un, it's still unclear what was, as it were, the right decision. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You adhere to the, quote, learning curve, unquote, theory of British success in 1918, and in particular during the 100 days? Yes, I think that um, in many respects, Britain had worked out how to do three-dimensional warfare, um, very accurate um, our heavy artillery fire uh, benefiting from accurate uh, aerial reconnaissance of opposing trench lines. I think that was the absolute key. And then um, moving their infantry forward, not in these long lines that, alas, had been easy victim to German machine gun fire, but um, in the smaller uh, groups uh, with uh, very different arms, including things like light mortars. I think that the it was hard fighting in 1918, but I think that they showed a tremendous achievement. And I think it's worth pointing out that in World War II, the Western Allies were absolutely crucial at sea, in the air, 
and in the war against Japan, but the actual defeat of the Wehrmacht was overwhelmingly due to the uh, the Red Army. Whereas I think it's fair to point out that in World War One, uh, it was the Western Allies that defeated the Imperial German Army, and without them, it would not have been defeated. And proportionately. Um, because the war in the air was less significant, it was more important in, in World War One than it was to be in World War Two. Why, in your opinion, did the so-called Kaiserschlachte or the German offensive in the spring of 1918 fail to result in the type of success that Hitler had in May, June 1940? I think that's a very good question. I think I mean, the classic answer usually given is that Ludendorff, who was the main planner in 1918, failed to focus on a given uh, axis of attack. So he, you know, he varied his place of attack, and this meant that he couldn't maintain his momentum. I think there are other factors. First of all, in 1939 in Poland, in 1940 in France, and in 1941 in Yugoslavia, uh, the anti-German forces suffered from having either no reserves or their reserves in the wrong places. And um, I think in 1918, the British and the French uh, were much better able to respond to German advances and did so more successfully. Um, and I also think that by um, the sort of spring of 1918, there was no particular capability advantage on the part of the Germans. And I think that was an important element in their failure. And I have to tell you, I think that there is this uh, tendency, I mean, Amer a number of American scholars have has drawn attention to the, to the floor. There is this tendency to overrate the fighting quality of the German forces vis-a-vis -vis their opponents. They were perfectly competent, though of course they were under a range of abilities. They were good German units and less effective German units, but the same was true of their opponents. And um, you know, the, um, the Germans might be particularly good at the tactical level, it varied. Uh, they might be okay at the operational level, it varied, but they weren't necessarily good at the strategic level. And, you know, it's worth pointing out, they flopped in 1918. I think it's fair to say it was, a, it was a different context, but uh, the Battle of the Bulge uh, or Operation Norwind, which happened, you know, the same sort of time in Alsace, the German, the German attacks in late 1944 was similarly strategically badly flawed. So I'm not convinced that as it were there was this, you know, astonishingly high German ability level, and we then have to look for special factors as to why the Germans failed. I, I would stand that on its head, I'm afraid to say. Going to the interwar period, which your book discusses at length, why, um, uh, I'm sorry, was it correct to say that the British Army had the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, on the run and nearly defeated in 1921? Well, they certainly were doing better in military terms. Um, they, the difficulty, as with any counterinsurgency war, or conflicts, it was a counterinsurgency conflict, is if you determine that you have to stop 
terrorism, then obviously, as long as the terrorists are able to go on murdering people, then they have they can be perceived as being successful. Um, the the British generals complained that they felt that they had a inadequate level of support um, from the government in London. And that's a view worth noting. Uh, again, you yourself have drawn attention to the flaws of counterfactualism. I cannot tell you what would have happened in 1922 or 1923 if the conflict had continued. Uh, but the army was getting sort of more confident that its methods were working towards the end than they had been in the early stages. I mean, I think it's worth bearing in mind that the army was hopelessly overstretched. It was also engaged in the Russian Civil War. It was involved in confrontation with the Ataturk nationalists in Turkey. There were rebellions in Egypt and in Iraq, and there were issues in uh, the Indian subcontinent, the Third Anglo-Afghan War in 1919. Um, so I think it's fair to say that they were under a lot of pressure, um, and that's worth bearing in mind. I mean, it's always a tricky one to work out. Uh, with uh, I've done a book, as you may know, on insurgency and counterinsurgency warfare, so that you can, as it were, lose an in a counterinsurgency warfare uh, conflict, even if you're still in control of much of the territory, all the major centres of population, etc., etc., it's just politically you run out of will, um, and therefore the military dimension is not always to the forefront or looked at differently. You shouldn't uh, abstract military considerations from their political context. Why concretely sticking? Uh, to the interwar period uh, a little bit more. Why concretely was Japan unable to uh, win the Sino-Japanese War, which commenced in uh, August 1937 by 1939? Why were they bogged down, as it were, in a stalemate? Well, that's a very good uh, point. I mean, what I would say is it's the difference between output and outcome. Output is killing people, capturing territory. Outcome is forcing, persuading, intimidating others into accepting your will. The Japanese were good at the first. Uh, they were not good at the second. Indeed, uh, there's a parallel here to the uh, German attack on the Soviet Union. Um, there were some uh, Chinese willing to cooperate uh, with the Japanese, and the, Chi the Japanese set up client governments accordingly, but not sufficient. And the Japanese found that uh, capturing territory was not enough to knock their opponents out. And from that perspective, you've got this, again, the point I've been trying to labor, this mismatch between operational aspects of war and strategic aspects of war. And if I might make a point, a general point, which I think is important, because I think when you look at military history, you should think also about other periods of warfare. One of the great flaws in war-making over the last half century is precisely the same thing, or looked at differently. This may appear paradoxical to you, but most generals aren't particularly good at strategy. And unfortunately, it's the case that the uh, political framework within which strategic considerations should be considered tends to be subordinated to military issues. Uh, would it be correct to say that for you, uh, appeasement was in theory a, a perhaps plausible policy, but that Chamberlain, Halifax, et Ali failed to implement it correctly? 
Well, I mean, it's always difficult to know, again, with hindsight, what one should or shouldn't have done. Um, I'm dubious as to whether the domestic support existed for a uh, attempt to engage in large-scale conflict with Germany. The French occupation of the Ruhr in the 1920s was not exactly a happy experience. Um, so I think in many respects, the governments of Britain and France struggling with a range of commitments uh, and considering uh, how best to judge about among a number of potential opponents, which in the case of Britain was Italy, um, Japan and Germany, and the British didn't want to fight all of them at once, um, and nor did they want to fight them on their own. I think that they were in a very difficult position. Um, I mean, in the end of the day, the Germans left them very few options, but it's easy to understand why the military advice to the government for quite a long while was there's relatively little we can do to determine the fate of Eastern Europe. And I think that was probably pertinent. I mean, it's sad to say that, you know, in 1939, Britain and France did go to war with Germany as a result of the German invasion of Poland. And, you know, I mean, I'm afraid to say that didn't protect the lives of the Poles. Yes, unfortunately. Uh, for you, uh, was the defeat of France in 1940 a contingent or a structural event? I suppose in terms of the historiography, the one, is, one is tempted to yeah. say uh, Ernest R. May versus Marc Bloch. I think the defeat of um, France in 1940 was a contingent uh, circumstance in very narrow military terms. Let's start with those and then we'll broaden out. The Germans had an extraordinarily risky strategy. Moving large amounts of armour through the Ardennes was risky. Um, fighting their way across the Meurs was risky and difficult and could easily have gone wrong, nearly did go wrong. Uh, and of course, they were jolly lucky that the uh, bulk of the French um, mobile reserves had been pushed forward into Belgium uh, in order to resist what had been anticipated as the German invasion there, and therefore we're not we're on the wrong place. So I think, yes, I think from the narrow military terms, it is contingent. In the broader question, the sense that um, was France decadent? I think that's a, that's a, it's a tricky one. You know, a fair number of French people died for their vision and view of France, uh, and I think it doesn't do their memory any good to present the whole of the French system as, as decadent. Obviously, not all the French wanted to fight um, Germany, and obviously, after they'd been defeated, a certain number of them uh, cooperated, collaborated in the shape of of Vichy. Um, I think it's rather too easy possibly to read back from Vichy to what happened in 1940. Um, it's disappointing, let's put it mildly, that the French weren't willing to fight on from exile. And in other words, that the French government didn't go to Algiers. They also, and, and, you know, France still had the second largest empire in the world in North and West Africa and Southeast Asia and in the Middle East, Syria and Lebanon, and a significant fleet. So it's disappointing they didn't do that. And from that point of view, um, there were serious contingent elements uh, that came into play, but it wasn't inevitable that there would have been that collapse of political will. So for you, there is no real differential in terms of the morale of French forces 
1940 from, say, what was exhibited by Russian forces in uh, 1941, 1942? No, I'm not sure I'd say that. I mean, <laughs> I think the, um, the Soviet forces, particularly after the brutality of the Germans became very apparent. Um, I think the Soviet forces fought harder. I mean, obviously, although this wasn't the only reason, you know, knowing that you'd get shot um, if you were perceived to lack um, lack morale uh, was is obviously an encouragement to fight harder. Um, but uh, no, I wouldn't say they were the, exactly the same. I think the Soviets fought particularly hard in defence of the Soviet Union, but that's not quite the same as saying that the French were useless, which seems to be uh, an attitude that's sometimes voiced. I mean, I know at the time of the Gulf War in 2003, when the French government indicated that it was not willing to take part in that war. Uh, many Americans drew attention to what they saw as French cowardice in 1940. I thought that was rather unworthy of them myself. I mean, in the World War II, all of the powers did things and all of their citizens did things that were not always as brave as they might have been. Um, I'm not sure that, you know, we could say that the American troops in the Philippines in 1941 were exactly exemplary as soldiers. So I think we, we have to be, and obviously the British had, you know, uh, a number of defeats where morale was low in the early stages of the war. So I think one has to be cautious here. All I'm saying is that I think it's too easy to argue from consequences to causes and I think one has to be wary of that when one's looking at France. Uh, in your previous comments you've uh, pointed out the um, uh, issues why Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's invasion of Russia in 1941 was uh, in some sense predestined to fail. Would, it, would you say then that uh, per se a blitzkrieg campaign, which is in essence what Operation Barbarossa was meant to be, was even in theory taking out the um, issues of Hitler's uh, micromanaging of the campaign uh, non-possimus? Well, I think, again, that's fascinating. I think it was strategically flawed unless there was a complete collapse of the Soviet system. And, and there were at least two moments when Stalin appears to have had a crisis of confidence, but the system did not collapse. Uh, I think that's very interesting. And of course, I doubt whether even if it had had serious problems, whether Hitler would have offered the, you know, a kind of second version of the 1918 piece of Brest-Litovsk. I mean, Stalin could have justified himself and said he was doing what Lenin had done in 1918. I don't think Hitler would have let him do that. Um, so I think strategically, there are many flaws there and many limitations. I mean, what sort of issues are we talking about in military terms? Well, these are well known in the literature, German logistics was rubbish. Um, you know, so much of the time they were dependent on using horses to bring up their uh, their supplies. They had an armoured corps or spearhead that wasn't bad. In the case of the Panthers, and which were mostly Mark IVs by by this stage, and um, Panzer Grenadiers, but the majority of the German army walked into the war and walked in the war, and using the prop German propaganda films as 
in endlessly is done on the television does not in fact give you an accurate account um, second of all um, tanks are not particularly brilliant weapons they can be stopped by anti-tank guns the Soviets had defense in depth yes they lost a lot of troops but as the um, the great American Sovietologist David Glantz has shown from day one the Soviets were killing more Germans than the Germans thought they were going to lose and not just killing more Germans, but destroying more German material, more more uh, tanks, more other weapons. So I think that the um, Germans tried to force onto the Soviets the German equation of success. You know, we kill more of you, you are therefore have lost. And that is doubly so in the German view, because you are all sort of degenerate people. And the Soviets didn't accept that equation. They were willing to go on fighting having taken and taking heavier casualties. And if you're against an opponent like that, and you have to bear in mind, war is fundamentally a cultural construction. Every society um, will have different suppositions about what is reasonable to take in terms of suffering and loss and fatalities. Once that's the case, you cannot assume you will necessarily be able to impose your verdict on your opponent. That was an enormous problem, obviously, for the Americans vis-a-vis -vis the Japanese in in uh, in the Pacific. Uh, and it similarly was a problem for the Germans. The Germans also, they were just not as good as they were cracked up to be. Repeatedly, um, German commanders proved deficient. Um, and of course, after the war, they all blamed Hitler and the weather and how large the Soviet Union was. They all blamed everybody bar themselves. Um, I'm afraid that was rather unconvincing. In uh, Lord Moran's Churchill's uh personal physician on in his book on Churchill there are still several statements uh, by among others Field Marshal Alexander that during the Second World War man for man the uh, average British soldier was not of the same level as quality as the British soldier of the Great War would you agree or disagree Ooh. I'm not really sure that I think that's a helpful comparison because people vary by unit. Um, and, you know, um, 1914 up to 1916, it's a volunteer army in Britain that then subsequently becomes a conscript army, whereas in World War II from the outset, it's a conscript army. And a conscript army, by its nature, is going to have a different pool with a volunteer army. But I wouldn't say that... Um, necessarily there were um, um, ne necessarily the British fighting quality was lower um, I mean if you think about uh, certainly in the Air Force it was very high in World War II I think it was very high in the Navy there is by army unit which is what you expect there's been some good work recently by Jonathan Fennell on the morale of British units in the Western Desert, he comes to the view that the morale was actually quite poor um, by the summer of 1942, uh, the German successes at Tobruk, and that one of Montgomery's great skills was to rally that morale and that morale had got better 
by El Alamein. And I think the point that that makes, and you know, I would urge you to read his book, it's well worth reading, is that morale is not a constant. And I'd say the same thing about fighting quality. They vary uh, due to a whole host of factors, some of which we might regard as rational and some of them irrational. There is also, as you will know, the research, some of it quite controversial, on the number of American troops in the Pacific who actually fired their weapons and those who didn't. And again, what that shows you is some individuals are more prepared to fight than others, which again is, I think, what exactly what you would anticipate. Uh, similarly, there is a, um, uh, in the literature by, among others, Sir Max Hastings, Williamson Murray, and to extent uh, um, Professor Fennell in his latest book, um, this argument that man for man the British and American soldier was not quite the equal of the German soldier in World War II. Would it be correct to say you don't agree with that um, analysis? Yes, no, I don't. And in fact, I say to my students, I mean, I cite the Hastings argument. You know, Hastings' argument essentially is that you find British and American officers commenting on episodes in which the morale of their troops appears low, and that Hastings argues you don't find the same thing if you were a German looking at German and Soviet sources. And I say to my students, well, where is that obviously a flawed use of sources? And of course, they're clever kids. They work it out. I mean, if you were a German officer and you'd said that, I mean, Hastings' book is dealing with the last six months of the war, you'd have been hung for defeatism. Uh, if you were a Soviet officer, the job of the commissar would have been to shoot you at once. Um, no, it's a, it's a ludicrous proposition. I mean, the, it is very, very difficult to evaluate um, these issues. There were obviously large surrenders of British and American troops, less so of American troops during the war. There are large surrenders of, of Soviet and German troops. Are you seriously suggesting that the German troops who surrendered, I think over 200,000 in Tunisia, were in some way lower fighting quality? No, they were, they'd been outmaneuvered by American and British forces and they'd lost. Um, and not everybody wishes to die on the, de on the beach at the last moment. So I know I don't I, I thought, you know, he's how should one put it about Hastings? He's a man who is willing to jump to judgment without necessarily showing a sort of sound. He's not a trained historian. I don't think there's a, a, a sound assessment of the archival situation there. But would you agree with uh, Professor Fennell in his newest book, which you've made reference to, that because of um, issues with morale as well as training, that uh, Montgomery, for example, couldn't do tactically certain things with, in terms of employing troops that uh, the Germans could in terms of uh, deep penetration. Well, I think the trouble for the British and for the Americans is they're moving a civilian, uh, moving a mass civilian force into. Uh, military service. And I think that's exactly the same problem, incidentally, that it affected the British in uh, World War I. And I think a state that has military training in peace 
time is more likely to find the transition quicker. That is to war. That does not inherently mean that its soldiers, though, are better in the long term. I mean, you use the phrase training there, and I think training is indeed the great uh, element of the war that tends to be underplayed. So, for example, there are two very good books, one by an American scholar, Daniel Marston, one by a British scholar, Tim Mormon, on the training of the British Indian Army in 1943. And what they're looking at is the interesting question, why did the British do so appallingly in Burma in 1942 and so much better in 1944? And the answer is training. Now, it's not that the British in 1942 were bad soldiers in that sense. But if you look at what the British Army in India had been doing in the late 30s, they'd been fighting the Fakir of Ipi on the northwest frontier of India, which was terrain which is dry, arid, high. Suddenly you get plunged into jungles, whether jungles in Malaya or jungles in Burma, and you find yourself in an alien environment, which you're not used to, and you don't do well in it, whereas the Japanese, conversely, had trained their men very well in forest, uh, forest uh, terrain, forested tr- terrain, both in Kyoshu and in uh, Honshu, and they, know how, they knew how to do it. That does not inherently mean that one is necessarily you know, going, having no fighting morale or fighting in caliber that just may mean they're not prepared for the you know for the conflict that is going to come up again they're going to come up against i mean a good more modern example which may help your listeners is the mess that affected the israeli army in the yom kippur or ramadan or whatever you want to call it october war uh, their tanks were really not prepared they were tanks were essentially prepared to fight egyptian tanks and suddenly they found themselves up against um, egyptian uh, anti-tank missiles and it took them a while um, to get used to what this entailed. And, uh, you know, I think one has to be aware that you can't um, so readily measure it off as if they are troops uh, taking part on what you might call an isotropic surface, equal in all parts, in which everybody is equally prepared, and then you give them scores out of 10, depending upon how well they do. I think that's a ludicrously crude, I'm not saying you're doing it, but I think it's a ludicrously crude approach to war. Alas, it's an approach that one might say is prevalent. I mean, there's many things that are wrong with military history. The failure to take strategy seriously is one. Um, The lack of attention to issues such as training and logistics is another one. The obsession with face of battle, as opposed to all other uh, instances of war, is a third. So there are many many flaws. And, you know, I'm sure my book has many limitations. I'm sure all my books on military history have got many limitations. But I am trying to think through the subject in a broader way than it is conventionally done. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? I think that in looking at war, we have to take strategy seriously. Why are people fighting in particular areas? And that leads to the question of what is the war about to them? It is not the same for every state, every people and every individual. There is meaning in war and these meanings vary and they affect the nature of the struggle. I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you, and good afternoon.